Thanks for tuning in to the Sojourn Church Podcast. We are a church committed to the gospel in the context of family, living on mission to the city of Portland and our world. For more information, visit our website, sojournpdx.org. Well, it's good to see everyone on this 4th of July weekend. I want to start by asking you a question this morning. What if you knew today would be your last day on earth? How would you spend that day? With whom would you spend this last day? Would it be a day of hopeful expectation? Or a day of hopeless dependency? Or maybe somewhere in between? You see, when time is short, we get focused. When a loved one is dying, we spend time with them. We put aside our plans so that we can spend that time with them. When a snowstorm is coming, you make preparations. You get milk, you get bread. Why those are the two things that we always get? I don't know, but you get milk, you get bread, you get firewood. In case the power is going to go out, you make preparations. When you see an accident on the highway and you realize that you're the only one around, you stop and you help. You stop and you call 911 and you put your plans and your agenda to the side in order to help. When I was 16 and processing a call to ministry, I had a mentor by the name of Clark Rogers. Actually, my oldest son's middle name is Clark, um, after my friend Clark Rogers. Clark loved life. He loved Jesus. He loved his wife. He loved his church. He loved being in ministry. He loved students. One time, Clark wrote in a blog post that his goals in life were to love God more to love my wife more, and to love people more. Clark met the woman of his dreams while serving at a church as a worship pastor, and then not long into their marriage, Clark was diagnosed with cancer, a very rare form of cancer, one they said that there, there is no cure for. He was actually about 33 years old when he got married, and it was around 33 and a half, 34, whenever he was diagnosed got to the point that outside of an act of God, an actual miracle taking place, Clark knew he only had so much time to live. They were exploring non-traditional treatments. I um, actually went to an area of Mexico that has a, a, a non-traditional treatments, and he was even trying those things. And then on May 4th, 2009, after a courageous battle with cancer, Clark passed on to his eternal home. Do you think Clark, knowing that he had very little time left on this earth, do you think it changed the way that he lived for the remainder of his time on earth? Do you think, man, he thought, I'm just going to waste my time or I'm just going to go do these things? Or do you think he intentionally lived his life knowing that the end of his life was very near, that it would be coming very, very soon? I didn't even remember this or realize until this week that Clark actually died when he was my age. So it kind of hit me in a different way than it did back in 2009 when I attended his, his funeral. But did he live with the view of the end in mind? This is the kind of thing that we're looking at in 1 Peter 4. The end of all things is near, is the phrase we're going to be looking at, and is the focus that Peter's going to kind of bring to our forefront this morning. So if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and open your Bibles to 1 Peter 4. 
We'll be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. 1 Peter 4, verses 7 through 11. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll get into our message. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning, and all of you. God, all praise, honor, and glory is due to you. We thank you for loving us so much that you sent your son, Jesus, to die for us and to give us a second chance at a restored and redeemed relationship with you. God, I pray this morning that we'll have open hearts and open minds as we look at the idea of the end is near and how it is that we are to live our lives with that in view. And God, as we see that you have given every single follower of you, every man, woman, and child, a gift or gifts, but not for our selfish gain, but in order to serve you and one another. God, may you change our hearts and our minds this morning. May we leave here looking more like you and with a more accurate picture of what it means to live in light of our calling. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So our first point this morning is live with Christ's return in mind. Look at verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 4. It says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Peter starts by reminding us that the return of Christ is imminent that it is going to take place, that it is going to come, and maybe sooner than we think. He uses this phrase in verse 7. He starts it out and says this, the end of all things. Now what he means by that is that the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus, now that those, things have taken, those events have taken place, Peter knew, and he's reminding us, the end of all things is at hand. That Jesus can return now at any time. Because he, since he ascended, he said, I will return. He didn't give us the date. He didn't tell us exactly when it would happen. But that it will happen. And that it will happen sooner than we think. And so what Peter is doing now, so he's reminding us that Christ told us this. And he's exhorting us. He's saying, sojourners, live in light of this reality. Live like Christ is going to return. Because Christ is going to Return. Now you might hear that, and you might think, living with the end in mind sounds a little bit radical, Matt. Like that sounds like something David Platt would write in a book. That we should that we should live this way. Juan Sanchez says this. Living with the end in view is not a call to radical Christianity, but to normal Christianity. So this is the call to every single Christ follower. And the call is not just for you individually, like we like to do often. The call is for us collectively. So as a church, a local church, and then as the church, kind of the, 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 the church, um, the, the big C church globally, that we are to live in such a way that displays the character of God to a hostile world. Remember, he's writing this to his first audience, who were, who were sojourners, who were strangers and exiles, yet we have found ourselves in, in that place today, and that we collectively are to live in such a way that we are showing the character of God to the world around us. One that remembers that we place our hope in a certain glorious future, so that everything we do 
we glorify God. Whether we're here worshiping, I know it seems a little bit easier in that context to think, okay, we're being led in songs and we can raise our hands or sit and pray. Whether we're out hiking, whether we're out enjoying the beauty of the coast or kayaking or raising children, doing the dishes, cooking a meal, going to work, everything we do, that we do it with the glory of God in mind. And then Peter gets real specific with us here by saying this, we ought to be sober-minded so we can be clear-headed and pray. Now, we hear sober-minded, and we typically think of, of drugs or alcohol, and it very much is that. So he's saying, hey, look, you, you need to have your mind in, in a right spot. But the idea is not simply so that you can just pray, but you, you can pray more effectively, that you can pray more appropriately. In other words, that you're praying informed prayers, that you're not just spitting out things and, and not being aware of what's happening in the world around you, and that you're not being informed about what it is you're interceding for. And so that your energy, it, take, well, it takes energy to pray. And while we do midweek prayer this summer, like it takes energy, right, to get here, to kind of forget about the emails and your agenda you have to do for your day, that we, we pause and say all that we're doing during this time is prayer. But it takes energy to pray. We have to be clear-headed. Have you ever tried to pray when you're just distracted about what's actually happening? I just got that email. I just had that fight with my boyfriend or girlfriend. My spouse and I are on the same page. And, like, and you're just distracted to the point where you're like, I can't, I can't even do this. But your life and your prayers are based on how you're living. What Peter's saying is you can't pray effectively if you're not thinking clearly. Now, my guess is many of us in the room would say, I've got it, Peter. Like, I'm sober-minded. I, I, I don't struggle with this. Maybe occasionally I'll have too much of this, but I'm, I'm, I've got it, Peter. Like, I'm, I'm good. But for most of us, I think today our addictions look more like our devices and our social media. You can't pray effectively if you're always looking at your phone. You can't be informed about what God's doing around you if you're always looking at your phone. And so for us, sober-mindedness, clear-headedness, Effective prayers might look different than what we typically think when we read a verse like this. And then verse Peter, verse 8, Peter says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. And so point number two is love one another earnestly. Now we can explain Christian love in a variety of ways. But Peter chooses to express it by saying that love covers a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is not saying, I think, I think most of us like this one, right? This is probably one of those verses that we're like, I'm going to frame this one, love one another earnestly. Like, we'll skip some of these other harder, difficult things. But Peter is not saying that we don't take sin seriously. I think that's the abuse and misuse of this verse. He spent much of his letter urging us at this point to live a life of holiness, which means that we take sin very, very seriously and display the holiness of God very, very seriously. But what he is saying is sin, when present, we address it, we bury it, and we move on. So if he's not saying that we don't take sin seriously, what exactly is Peter saying? He's concerned about minor offenses and conflict among Christians. If you're new to church, or maybe you're returning to church, did you know that Christians have conflict sometimes? Anyone ever experienced that? You know churches have division sometimes? Do you know Christians would even split? 
You ever wonder where we got denominations? <laughs> Maybe you grew up Methodist or Lutheran or non-denominational or Baptist or Pentecostal or Charismatic. Or maybe you're conservative Baptist, or maybe you're Southern Baptist, or, or maybe you're on and on and on. But sometimes there's conflict and strife, and so what Peter is saying is, guys, we don't have time for that. Proverbs 10, 12 says, hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Peter's saying the end is near, so don't waste your time with trivial conflicts. Don't waste your time with, with gossip. Don't waste your time with trying to tear each other down. In other words, love covers the offensive that threatens to destroy Christian community. Something stood out to me this week is that Peter assumes there will be sin in the church. He assumes it. He says sincere love covers it, keeping the unity of the community. I think sometimes we, we come into church and we, we assume there will be no sin. One day... But we assume there won't be. But Peter here assumes, if he assumed about the New Testament church, which we model after, then I'm going to assume it about the modern day church. But once again, he's not just dismissing it, saying it's okay. He's assuming that it will be present. And he's, he's kind of already talked about that some, but that love covers it. So when you get offended by that person who did something to you, who maybe sinned against you, love covers that. There's a way that you can get through that and get past that. I know that interns are tired of hearing me say this, but I've said all summer long since they got here, communication. Communication is key, right? So sometimes what, what I've observed and experienced in, in church settings is, well, this person did this and this. How come you're not part of this anymore? So, like, oh, did you ever communicate that to them? No, I'm communicating it to you. Well, that's called gossip. <laughs> you should go communicate it to them. And guess what? Love covers that, that there's a way that we can get past that. James 5.20 says, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Juan Sanchez, again, he says, love covers a multitude of sins, means that we don't go around looking for faults in others. You ever met anybody like that? That we do go around seeking to think the best of others, and that we don't spend our time lingering over the past flaws of others. We always stand ready to forgive one another. After all, the end is near, and we are going to live with our brothers and sisters for eternity. Now, Juan said it pretty nicely. I would probably just say, get over yourself. <laughs> and get over it. But I'm, let's go with Juan. Few things make our witness more compelling to the world around us than our love and unity. Right? When, the, when, the, when the world around us who aren't part of the church, who aren't Christians, when they say our love and unity, it, Scripture tells us like there's nothing really much more compelling than that. But on the flip side, few things make our witness less compelling than our disunity and our lack of love for one another. So when you look at, at the news outlets or look at social media and you see the church and different Christians tearing each other down, my guess is the enemy absolutely loves that. Absolutely loves that because those around us, and I've had these conversations with friends. Some of you maybe as well go, you see your people, you see what they're doing. You guys tear each other down. You shoot your wounded. You, you do this and you do that. There's no way I'd want to be part of that. And you have to basically say, yeah, I agree. I don't want either. That's not what the Bible tells us. But when they see 
unity, when they see a love that they don't expect, they don't anticipate, especially in the hard times, that's when those seven people go, I don't know how you guys do it. That's a community I would want to be part of, even if I don't believe the things that you believe. But maybe I will eventually. And so you think about God, because of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, he doesn't hold our offenses against us, and you still sin, but rather he covers them with his love, the ultimate expression of love and sacrifice, that we are now called to do the same and extend that love to others. So if you're upset with someone, you're offended by something somebody did, look to Jesus. How did Jesus treat you in your sin? How did Jesus treat you today when you've probably already sinned? How's he going to treat you later? He covers that with love and welcomes you and that we are called to extend that same to others. So earnest love then, which seeks the good of others before one's own, finds its practical expression in hospitality. So point number three is hospitality is a mark of a genuine Christian community. It says, show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Now, hospitality was a big deal in the New Testament. And I would say hospitality is a big deal for here, us here at Sojourn. Today, when we travel, what do we do? Book a hotel or book an Airbnb. I mean, there's hotels.com, like last minute, Priceline special. We do that sometimes. You're like, oh, I need to find a place to stay. I didn't know I was going to be here this late. But the first century Christians, they depended on one another. Therefore, hospitality was not just a matter of Christian convenience. It was a vital part of the Christian community. It was a vital part of Christian mission, this idea of hospitality. Christian missionaries, when they would travel from one region to the next region in order to share the gospel, they depended on other Christians along the way in order to have a place to stay. So hospitality, it was a vital part of Christian mission from its inception. This wasn't something that was later added. And in most cases, they didn't have buildings to meet in, not even stamp buildings, which I know we kind of laugh at sometimes that we meet in a stamp building, but they didn't have a building like this with air conditioning to meet in. They were meeting in homes. You know what that meant? Somebody had to willingly open their home so that the church could gather, similar to what we do in our gospel community in the middle of the week. And it says to do it without grumbling. It's almost like giving. You know, it's like do it with a cheerful heart. So if you're going to grumble about doing it, just don't do it. But if you are going to do it, do it without grumbling. Like, oh, i got to get this clean, and i got to do this. So let's be like, then don't do it. But we're called to hospitality. Now, I know that not everyone here can host. So I'm not picking on that, but I do want to recognize those who are able to open their homes. Thank you for opening your home. Thank you for your willingness to provide a place that we can gather and study your word and grow closer to God and closer to one another. But hospitality is not just opening your home. You might think, I don't have a home. Or my home's definitely like too small. Trust me, like you do not want to be in there. It'd be the opposite of hospi hospitable to have you there. Well, there's other forms of hospitality. For the group, could be providing a meal. Could be showing up early and saying, hey, I know you're hosting. Can I come and help set up the chairs? Can I help clean up your house? Can I watch your kid? Can I scrub your toilet so that we have a clean toilet? Like there's all forms of hospitality that go beyond just showing up to somebody's house that we can all contribute to. Hospitality is one of the marks of the Christian community. It's, it's critical for Christian mission and the advance of the mission. And hospitality is necessary in order for us to eventually multiply gospel communities, which is part of our vision, that we want to multiply at all levels. 
that we want to have multiple homes eventually meeting, but we'll have to have homes that we can meet in and that we can see this gospel message spread. The words without grumbling acknowledge that those who open their homes, they likely grow weary of the service. But the exhortation is be hospitable without grumbling. But if we're all in it together, we're all hands on, it probably will make it where the host is not going to grumble about it because they don't feel like they're doing it in isolation alone. Then in the rest of these verses, Peter's going to give us one final thing. And this is where the, our focus is going to kind of rest and land this morning as it comes in verse 10 and 11. Point number four. Use your gift to serve the church. It says, each has received a gift. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks as one who speaks oracles of God Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies, in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Peter says, we each have received a gift, so use it. We collectively are to be the stewards of God's gifts that he has given us, his church. And he didn't give them to you to serve yourself. He gave them to you to serve the body and to give him glory. As a church, I want you to hear this. Peter says, you need to make sure that there's one thing that you're doing with the end in sight. So he set up, says, the end of all things is at hand. At any point, Jesus can return. So as a result, there's one thing that you are to be doing with the end in sight. That is to use your gift or your gifts to serve one another, the church. Verse 10 says, as each has received a gift. As each has received a gift. In other words, he's not just writing this to pastors and ministry leaders. He's not saying, if those of you who are going to go to seminary, those of you who are going to get your MDiv and get ordained, and those of you who are going to go overseas as missionaries, he's saying, each of you, every single Christian, if you identify as a Christ follower, you're part of that, each, then the Holy Spirit has given you a spiritual gift. Well, that might lead you to a question. What's a spiritual gift? A special and a unique way that the Holy Spirit will show up and manifest in your life. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says this. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. In other words, it's given so that you can serve and build up the church. Well, how do you discover and to develop your spiritual gift by serving. It's like one of the easiest ways, and it tells us right here. Serving in different capacities until it's revealed or others confirm that gifting in you. In other words, you don't just pick the gift that seems the most attractive and appealing and it will get you the most recognition and say, I want that gift. But that's what we see happen oftentimes. A number of years ago, uh, I had an individual who came to me and said, I want to I preach and teach. And I said, okay. But there was only one problem. This individual couldn't teach. They couldn't preach. But they weren't willing to learn. 
Maybe it was a, a spiritual muscle. You know, if, if you work out, you know, if you haven't worked out for a long time, you go work out, all of a sudden you got, you're like, I'm sore the next day. Maybe it was a muscle that hadn't been worked out yet. But the individual refused to take the time to figure that out. They just showed up and said, I want to do this. And we said, well, let's start. Why don't, you, why don't you do this? No, I don't want to do that. I don't want to put out chairs. I don't want to do slides. I don't want to make coffee. I want to preach and teach. And I said, well, sounds like we got an issue then. Well, they moved on. Later they said, I want to lead worship. Only one problem. They couldn't sing and they didn't play an instrument. Now, they can worship in various forms, but Scripture talks about a gleaming clong and a cymbal and all this noise. Like, it, it, wasn't, it wasn't Ben. <laughs> I'm going to tell you that. It wasn't Ben. <laughs> you don't just go and pick the one that you want, but you start by serving. Now, if this individual said, I'd love to serve. If you ever need someone to preach or teach? And we put them up there and thought, yeah, I don't know. But you serve and you, and you discover the church around you, the body, will affirm that in you. To say, hey, I think I see this in you. I think there's this gift here. Ephesians 4, 11 through 13. I'm going to try to hit this pretty fast. It says, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What does it say he gave the apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for? It says he gave them to equip the saints. Well, who are the saints? It's you all. You are the saints. And equip them for what? The work of ministry. Former pastor of mine would say it like this. He said, the day I became a pastor is the day that I left ministry. One of my jobs as your pastor is to equip you in order so that you can operate out of the gift that God has given you in order for you to be able to serve one another. And so if you are a Christian and you're not using the gift that God has given you and you're not using it to serve and build up his bride, the church... Is that a big deal? We've already been told God's given us all a gift. It's not a question. It's not like God missed you or God skipped you. But he says each. So if you have that gift, but you're not using it, is that a big deal? Ephesians 4, 15, 16. It says, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Did you catch that? What did Paul say makes the body of Christ grow? We can answer this one. It's not rhetorical. What to, grow, to grow? He said every part, every person working properly What if your liver decides to quit working on you? Today. The end of the service, liver's like, I'm done. It's holiday weekend. I'm taking off. <laughs> Is that a big deal? Yes. Are you sure? Yes. You mean you, mean you can't just have a part-time liver and still operate like normal? Are you, I mean, are, am I hearing you guys right? Yeah. The liver can't just show up when it's convenient. The liver can't just say, hey, this... 
I don't have anything going on this weekend. I'm there. Are you sure? Come on, guys. We can have a part-time liver. You see, church, we're only as healthy as a church, as a body, as each of us is living this out. I've heard this too many times to count to the point that it makes me want to run through that wall. I'm a Christian, but I just don't want to be part of a church. Let me be real direct for a second. This is an unbiblical mentality that our generation has bought into. It says, me and Jesus. Well, Jesus is perfect, yes. And that's convenient. And if Jesus gave us the option between following, you know, being part of just him and, and the church, and sure, like, church, choose Jesus. But Jesus left us with a plan. He gave us a map. And it wasn't a confusing one. <laughs> he said, I'm leaving you one another. And together, you're going to do greater things than I did. And so if it's an unbelievable mentality that our generation has bought into, and it breaks my heart to see it. Because that's not the way that God designed it. And I'd even go as far as to say that it's anti-biblical. And so if you've bought into this lie, we need to get the lie of, of Satan behind me. You ever heard this, the expression, Satan, get behind me? Well, this is the mentality we need to say, get behind me. Because this is not how Jesus, that we worship and glorify, and we allow the Bible to dictate everything we do, how it was designed. And this verse tells us, and I'm saying this lovingly, so please don't hear it any other way. If this is your mentality, then you're wasting the gift that God gave you. And living outside the will of the Lord for your life. Now, before I make everyone upset, and we have nobody here next week other than Ben, because he gets paid, <laughs> my intention is not to upset anyone. If you are a non believer, or you might just say, I'm not sure, I, I, sometimes I'm, I think I am, maybe I'm not, and you're just checking out church, you're welcome. Take as long as you need to figure it out. If you're wounded and you're needing a season of healing, you're kind of maybe making your way back. And you might be thinking, like, I'm just climbing back up, and now this guy's coming in, like, I'm done. Like, you're welcome. Stay as long as you need. We want to help you see you get healthy. There's, there's a room for that. Remember, we talk about this journey. So I'm not going against our journey of inviting all people on a journey, learning what it means to follow Jesus. If you're here and you say, I don't know what my spiritual gift is. Matt's making it sound like I'm supposed to be used. I don't even know what it is. Stay. Let us help you figure out what your spiritual gift is. But if you're here, and you are a Christian, and you have no desire to discover your spiritual gift, because you might be hearing anything, but if I discover it, then I'm called to use it. At least if I don't know, there's some kind of like gray area there, right? Like, I don't, nobody knows, I don't know. If I knew, maybe I'd use it, but I don't know. But if you're here, you have no desire to discover your spiritual gift. You have no desire to use it for the building up of the body of Christ. Then you're likely always going to struggle knowing your purpose and being part of a meaningful, biblical Christian community. Why? Because Peter just told us the end of all things is at hand and we don't have time to waste. We are joining Jesus as he is building his church, and we need to be prepared and ready for battle. Remember last week, so take up your arms. It was kind of a, a war term. And Jesus himself said that you will be held accountable for how you use your gifts. 
Now I'm going to try to get through this real quick. I was trying not to make this an extremely long message. But Matthew 25, 14 through 30. So this is going to be my speed reading. These are the words of Jesus. Because I know we can easily go, well, that's Peter. All right, let's get Peter out of the way. Let's go to Jesus. For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to him them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one. To each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had the two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here, I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He who had received one talent came forward, saying, Master, I knew you had been a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, you have what is yours. And then pick up verse 26. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he who will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away and cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Church, I don't know how else to say it. There is no such thing as a Christian who sits on the sidelines. If you've ever played sports and you weren't that good, you sat on the sidelines. You sat on the bench and you just begged your coach to get in or you hoped your team was that good they got up by 30 points and you would get thrown in. Well, good news on this team, there is no sideline. There's no sideline to refuse using your gift for the building of the body of Christ and the glory of God. Matthew 26 is referring to those who have never actually been saved to begin with. We don't believe you can lose your salvation. Charles Spurgeon, great preacher, said, As a Christian, you are either a minister of the gospel or you're an imposter. One day, every single one of us will have to give an account for how it is that we stewarded the gifts that God gave us. And our brothers Peter saying, Church, the end is near. Steward your gift well. And you find your spiritual gift by serving the body of Christ. God doesn't expect you to have it figured out day one. That's not, you know, that there's this magic like, oh, this is what I'm good at. That may happen. It may not. But you figure out by saying, where can I serve? And as you serve broadly, you'll see where the Spirit of God has gifted you. Because people will start being around and say, hey, you know, you've really got this. And for, the, for everyone else, don't be afraid to speak up. Sometimes it's, it's that word that God will give you for someone. And you're really good at this. Ben, have you ever led worship? Because, man, you're really good at guitar. And you've got a good voice. 
I don't know for sure. There's probably a point in time that Ben never thought about leading worship. But eventually people are like, you've got this gift. God has given you this. How are you using it for the church? My joke with Ben is we're going to go start a cover band because if I wasn't a pastor, I could choose. I'd be in a band. Um, but we wouldn't only use it for that. He's using it for the church and building up the church. And so when you realize your gift, steward it and join the mission. Be that liver. Say, I'm going to be in, and I'm going to do the part that I have to play. There's hospitality, there's service, there's greeters, there's group leaders, there's graphics, there's camera, there's music, there's teaching. On and on and on. There's all kinds of areas of service. It's the body working together properly. And that's the way that God has designed it. And so I want you to be part of what God is doing here in our midst. I don't want you to miss out on what God is doing. As a pastor, I have FOMO for you. Because I see what God is doing. I see how God has designed it. And when people miss out, I'm like, oh man, like, it's, it's not the guilt trip anymore. It's just like, in my heart, it's like, no, they're missing what God has for them. And I'll hear in conversations that they're looking for that. But sometimes it's, we have to open God's word and be reminded what he's called us to do collectively. And then finally, Peter closes this section with his own doxology. And so as we love one another, those around us will come to realize now or to confess on the last day that the Father has sent Jesus to be the Savior of the world and that we belong to him. And so he ends by saying, to him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So church, let me pray for us that we would steward the gift that God has given us to serve him, to serve the church, and to give him all glory and dominion forever and ever. And then we'll go into our time of response. God, we come to you with a confession of our heart that at least I can speak for myself, that I often fail to steward the gift that you have given me. God, that I often want to use it for my own gain, for my own recognition. So God, we ask and repent. I'd ask today that you would spark something in every single one of us to steward the gift that you have given us to serve you and your church for your glory and dominion forever. God, if we don't, someone in here doesn't know their spiritual gift or they're still figuring out, God, that may we steward that relationship that we would help them figure out, not just leave it to themselves. God, if somebody's just still exploring Christianity or they're maybe returning to church, God, that we provide space and room for them. God, maybe they they experienced something that wasn't of a genuine Christian community. They weren't experiencing earnest love for one another and hospitality. So God, may they see that here. God, may sojourn be a church that's marked by living in light of the, the end in mind. God, may we be a church that loves one another earnestly. May we be a church that's hospitable to all people. And God, may we be a church that helps people discover their God-given gift and how to use it to serve you and serve you well. God, it's in your name, your power, your strength. We'll give this time response over to you. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to hear how God is working in your life. You can connect with us and find more available teachings and resources at our website, sojournpdx.org.